Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that thinks that if Everton aren't careful, they might find themselves in a relegation scrap. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sports. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. And it's been a turbulent few days in the Premier League, with Burnley successfully managing to petition the Premier League to introduce not just one, but two winter breaks, with the stipulation that it only applies to Burnley. Rafa Benitez lost his job after a disappointing defeat to Norwich, who now find themselves no longer at the bottom of the table, whilst Philip Coutinho returned to the Premier League and dramatic style for Aston Villa. We'll also be looking at a few other issues across the world of football, but let's jump in right where we left off last week, when we asked the question, are Rafa Benitez's days at Everton numbered? Well, yeah, I mean, I think um, we asked it. The writing was very much on the wall to an extent. We didn't, you know, we weren't massive. Uh, you know, we called it and no one else did. Um, but yeah, we kind of talked about the fact that it could go one of two ways in the next week or so, because on the one hand, Everton are massively investing, seemingly, in, you know, a new crop of young players yet again. Um, and the, the latest group... That, um, that is without Marcel Brands, the director of football, who kind of has been presiding over all of the transactions since 2018 for Everton. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, it, it seemed really rocky for him at, at Everton. So it was always going to be a weird play between those two things where feels like they're investing in him, but at the same time feels like he's still really struggling. Um, and clearly those two things became a rock and a hard place and something had to... Something had to move, and and he's gone. It is funny because you're right when you when you speak about how it looked a certain way, and when we talked about this last week, I think we both said give him a bit more time because that looked like how the, how the club was sort of building themselves over the few months. They'd let go of Marcel Brands uh, allegedly in, in at least some small part because him and Benitez didn't quite get on. They'd sold Luca Dean, who has been uh, inconsistent, I would say it's fair to say, but also on his day, a really, really good player for them, apparently because Benitez had real issues with his attitude, um, and that was a big part of it, and Everton fans were really sort of like, well, I'm not sure about letting him go. Now, now Everton fans are fuming they've let him go, because they're like, he was a really good player of ours, um, and we've let him go to a piece of man who then got sacked. Um, and there were a lot of other um, senior figures in sort of the backroom staff that were let go over the month of December and the beginning of January, sort of also to make sure the Benitez could get a real lineup of it. And it's it's the most Everton thing to do all that and then sack the manager. It's even more Everton to do all that and then spend a lot of money on two players who the new manager might like, but the new manager might come in and be like, Mikolenko and Patterson aren't the profile of fullback that I want at all. It seems weird that, and I understand obviously losing to Norwich is a pretty dramatic, it, it can be a real opinion shifter because Norwich haven't picked up a lot of wins this season, but it just seems weird in a game where, you know, Patterson didn't even play... Mikelenko play, but like he hasn't even really had a chance to either finish the window or use any of the players they have acquired so far yet. So to sack him right after doing that, it, it was just so Everton um, just to keep sort of doing the same thing and the same thing. And it will be the same thing if you wouldn't be surprised if the new manager comes in and, as I said, doesn't like those players. And then they have to have another sort of season where they're not quite playing in the manager's system and another window where they have to spend more money on fullbacks that they will then set the manager after. And it's just a, it's the Everton vicious cycle. <laughs> Yeah, it does. Um, the main thing that it, it smacks to me of, right, is that it feels like this was a decision made in the heat of the moment. This wasn't a, we've thought about it for months. It might have been a, you know, win this game or you're out. But based on the way that they've been behaving as a club over January, it does feel like they were willing to commit to, to Rafa. So whatever happened after that Norwich game, or even, you know, that led to Norwich losing in that game because they didn't exactly look um, very well put together. Um, something happened, something, you know, a switch flipped or, a, you know, tensions were, were frayed to just the right amount that there was a big falling out. It feels like it was an emotional decision rather than a, you know, let's sit down and really plan the future of our club. And that's always a bit of a shame, in my opinion, and it, it always sets clubs back when the, when they make that kind of decision. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It definitely seemed like an emotional decision, and, and, and many Everton fans will, will tell you it's this kind of decision-making, this kind of governance that has led them to this scenario where they haven't won trophies in, I think it's 27 years, and they're, they're a team that used to be, you know, a while back, but at a certain point, one of the biggest teams around that just have not been eating it at the top table for a long time. And I think, you know, as much as you look at someone like Benitez having been somewhat underwhelming so far this season, 
we went into the reasons as to why that may or may not be his fault last episode, so I won't, you know, bore listeners again, but whether or not you think it was his fault, you can't help but feel that there is another share of fault, greater or otherwise, that is still at the top that makes these sort of weird decisions. And so whoever comes in next as the manager, how can they be expected to to really turn things around? They've gone through so many managers now. Uh, I think this is like going to be their seventh manager in five years or something. And the result is always the same, really underwhelming uh, relative to what the expectations are. And at a certain point, you've got to go, well, what's the common denominator? It's not all these managers who have great pedigree and great results elsewhere. The problem is something else. Yeah, definitely. I, I th- actually think it's the ninth one in six years, um, which is a, a crazy I mean, that, thing. I mean, that, those might both be true. It might just be one year they had another two managers, but that's definitely a better way to phrase it than mine, yeah. Yeah, true. Well, either way. Um, since Roberto Martinez left, um, and we'll get into him a, a little bit later on, but it's interesting to look back to the start of last season where things were very different for Everton. They just brought in a couple of new players, Hammers Rodriguez was, um, you know, exciting fans uh, on on uh, the blue side of Liverpool. And there was this idea that, you know, they might really start to push into the top six. And obviously now that has completely changed. And I wonder if, again, what we've talked about in the past has happened at Everton, which is the dangers of trying to, to grow too quickly. Um, I think that... It's interesting because it doesn't smack of of that. It doesn't feel like they made a couple of of giant, giant signings. In theory, they were quite sensible. They picked up Alain, who was a really good holding midfielder. They picked up um, James Rodriguez, who, sure, he's a really big name, but, you know, they didn't spend a lot of money on him. Um, And they seem to be... He was free, wasn't he? Well, exactly. They they seem to be building something there. But I think, in my mind at least, the, the main problem that they had was probably that they didn't have the squad to back up their first team. And I think that when you get sold the idea that we're going to build something, it's going to be really exciting, we're going to get all of these new exciting players in, you have to deliver on that. And as soon as you lose any sort of momentum, especially players like Hamas Rodriguez in that dressing room, that will expect to be performing at the highest level, be competing for trophies, it can go south really quickly. And I think that combined with the fact that Rafa Benitez maybe wasn't in it for the long haul, just meant that it all seems to have fallen down around their ankles. Yeah, 100%. And it's often that it's funny because there are a lot of similarities to how Everton started this season with last season. Um, not so much in this sort of, there wasn't a Hammers Rodriguez equivalent, but last season, I think it was Everton won their first four games and were top of the league after the first four games. And this season, Everton won three and drew their, uh, drew the third of the four, but won three and drew one of their first four games. And I think may have also been at the top of the league at some point, because I remember cities started late something, or they're, they're for whatever reason, there was, you know, a bit of a, a, a jumpy start to the way the way the league started um and yeah Everton looked really good at the start of the season and then ran out of steam and you can obviously look at the very the very obvious marker there was you know Dominic Calvert-Lewin who scored in all of the first three games then got injured and their form coincided massively with that but that I think just points to what you were saying not having the squad to back up someone who is as good as Dominic Calvert-Lewin and obviously you can't have two Calvert-Lewins but there wasn't even someone to really pick up three quarters of that slack much less half much less you know and so they now find themselves in this really really dangerous position um that's only been compounded by decisions made elsewhere as well um and i think you know we talk about everton as a club that can really go in circles and and sort of make the same mistakes over and over and over you couldn't ask for a more sort of like on the nose first choice manager for them at the moment who they're chasing, which is Roberto Martinez. They're literally going full circle. And Roberto I mean we can sort of question it, but Roberto Martinez all Everton fans again have been like, "What? Do you not see the last ten games have been for us? Like it wasn't a good time." And, and and what are they expecting to have changed? It's not like Roberto Martinez left Everton, has gone off to Belgium and been absolutely stupendous. I think by all accounts, his time at Belgium with Belgium's so-called golden generation, where they've won exactly nothing, has been a pretty big failure. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, they haven't won anything, and it definitely feels like a step backwards. Not necessarily, you know, the worst idea. I mean, I don't like it, but I can think of worse people to get in um, just because I think he would, while while he'd be unexciting, he would maybe stabilise the club a little bit. He'd be a familiar face. Um, I don't know. I, to be honest, it's it's an interesting thing to, to think about. Like, where next for this Everton? Do you want to bring someone in who 
we'll just kind of stabilize them. Do you want to try and find someone who's going to suit the profile, the tactical profiles of, you know, the, the players that they've just got in to try and um, actually justify their new signings? Um, it's going to be an interesting choice. Um, and if it's not Roberto Martinez, I could I could very well see it being, um, you know, a very old Premier League head um, who, you know, someone well known for their uh, um, ability to, to stop teams from getting relegated and, and just do a job. Perhaps someone of the big variety, someone of the Sam <laughs> variety. No, but I mean, this is the interesting thing is that you talk about sort of Roberto Martinez not being the worst choice in terms of stability. And Martinez has worked with, you know, a number of teams, worked with Wigan, obviously, very famous back in the day and has got some good results out of smaller teams. But why chase after as your first choice someone who is in a job there are so many other, notably Big Sam would be the first to go to mind, but, you know, someone who not only has sort of been at the club before and it ended a little bit acrimoniously, but also someone who is in a job for a team that, you know, he, he may still be, you know, boss of them in the World Cup later this same year. So it seems like a weird person to go for first. And then their second choice, apparently, is Wayne Rooney, which is interesting for a lot of reasons. And I want to talk about that a little bit in a second, but also, again, someone who is in a job and in the middle of a huge, huge, huge undertaking with Derby and, and sort of getting a lot of stuff done there. So it just seems weird to go for those two first in the middle of a, a of a you know season because apparently what's happened now is they've had to sort of lump Duncan Ferguson in as interim manager. They're not going to be able to get a new manager in time for the Villa game. And when you look at this run of games, we talked about it when we talked about Benitez last week, this is very much sort of a make or break part of Everton's season. It's a run of relatively kind games and they've really got to win these at this point. Before, it was sort of like, Benitez has got to win these to keep his job. Now, it's Everton have got to win these because if they lose to the Norwiches and the Newcastles and the and the Leeds, they might be in danger of getting relegated. Yeah, no, you're right. They, they might well be. Um, I mean, they've got, yeah, they've got a game or two in hand for the, the teams around them. But, you know, if they start hitting free fall, then it could really spell danger for them. Um Sorry, I had but, something and then but, I uh, semi-forgot. Jump in if you want. But, but that's the thing though, isn't it? It's like, you know, they've got some games in hand, but you've got to win those games. And they've just shown against Norwich that they couldn't win against, ostensibly at the time, the worst team in the league. Um, and it is, you know, obviously worth noting that Norwich are now dragging themselves off the bottom. I, I would personally be uh, very enthused if uh, Norwich actually managed to uh, escape the drop. Um don't really see it happening, but, you know, it'd be very interesting to see Dean Smith pull off that revival. But if Everton can't beat Norwich, who's to say they can beat anyone else, in, in theory, you know? There's no easy games. No, yeah, you're right. I think, um, I mean, Norwich are just kind of chances at the moment. They'll they'll latch onto anything they can and just scrap for any sort of points. So I think Everton were just, uh, you know, victims of... Um, you know, this this new look Dean Smith side. I mean, the even more ironic thing is like beyond Roberto Martinez, the other the other manager that springs to mind that I bet Everton wish they could have back is David Moyes. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember who it was, but I saw someone today saying like, that's the exact profile of manager they should go for. And it is. It's someone who's like, that's kind of the reason why I hate them going for Martinez is such an idea because they're sort of going for Martinez off the back of like, Again, it's an emotional hire. Oh, he used to manage here. Oh, and he's gone and he's got a job at a really big football federation. And, you know, oh, Belgium, you know, they're number one in the FIFA rankings. Have you ever heard that? Oh, well, you know, so he must be very good. It's not actually looking at the the actual evidence and the and the stats and the, the story behind the, you know, glitzy front page. Um, so, yeah, it, it just seems very weird. Wayne Rooney is another interesting one, though. Um, I want to talk about Wayne Rooney a little bit because Wayne Rooney is another one who... Has he has he got the credentials for that job beyond having been an Everton player at some point? Um, I do think for what it's worth, um, and I think we can talk about this. I want to talk about this probably towards the end of the season uh, when we see whether they've been relegated or not. But I think Wayne Rooney's doing a fantastic job trying his hardest to keep Derby up despite their billions of points deduction. Um, but it's still very, very early doors for them to want Wayne Rooney to come in and save them from a massive catastrophe because where's his where's the evidence he can do that? Yeah, agreed. I think um, it would be a very brave decision, and I don't think it makes any sense for Wayne Rooney to, to try and do that. Um, I would be quite disappointed if he did go. It's, it very much feels like you're trying to fit a square into a round hole. It, it just seems like it would be an almost sort of Lampard at Chelsea-esque appointment if Rooney decided to take the kind of thing where he would take a step up, sort of you know, enamoured by a club that he loved as a boy and sort of all this, and then sort of has this indelible mark 
put on his sort of CV in much the same way that Frank Lampard still hasn't got a, a job in the in the game. Although, again, he's been linked to this job. Um, but yeah, it just seems like it'd be a bad career move from Rooney, who it seems is, uh, you know, garnering himself a little bit of respect down in the championship for trying to do the impossible against all odds. Yeah, no, agreed. I actually think um, Frank Lampard wouldn't be the worst idea in the world. Um, you know, he, he does have a track record of um, promoting youth, uh, if if little else, in the Premier League. So, I mean, they could do worse. But this is the whole thing, again, speaks to the fact that they didn't have a plan in place. And maybe that was why they were willing to commit to Rafa Benitez, because there aren't a lot of good options at the moment. I mean, you could maybe even look at the fact that Man U have gone for Ralph Ragnick as as proof evident that, you know, they didn't have anyone better. Yeah, well, it's often in the middle of the season a tough time to get managers. You know, there's no guarantee that you're going to have managers out of a job at any given time. Um, so, yeah, it's always a tough time to do it. It, it. it definitely does, you know, it's it's probably a weird situation, but you probably always, as a club, as a rule of thumb, want to have, like, one eye on a possible replacement because you never know what's going to happen. You never know if a manager's suddenly going to have a crazy, like, training ground bust up with all of the tea ladies at once or if there's going to be some sort of it. Like, you always want to be able to have, I would say the same thing of, you know, all players as well you would have to imagine that most top clubs at least in mind have an idea at any given moment of like oh if this striker goes out of form we're going to buy this kind of player in January so why is the same true same not true of managers necessarily you would think so it would make sense wouldn't it make a whole lot of sense I mean could you see um could you see Nuno at Everton uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, potentially, he would definitely be someone who could sort of bring the uh, the stability there. So he could be a, a good choice potentially. Um, and you know, I, I think Everton fans might find it a little bit tough having his premise style. There was a very interesting uh, discussion uh, with Rafa Benitez. Uh, I think it was with the Athletic he had, but he sort of came out and he said a few things. And one of the things that he said apparently was that he felt he was working for a dysfunctional club where. Um, the, the 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 players often found it struggle to perform in front of the Goodison faithful, like the fans who went to all the games, and sort of buckled under the expectation of the fan base. So I, I don't know if it's ever really fair to blame fans for wanting their team to win per se, but we do definitely sometimes see one thing we do sometimes see is sort of managers come under fire for not playing what fans perceive to be their club style of football which is by the way always attacking you ever notice how every single fan of every club it's like let's get back to the old so-and-so way you know ambitious attacking football and you're like united fans say that and you're like yeah kind of so at some points but you're like burnley fans go get back to the good old burnley football and i'm like what, what do you define that as there was someone really funny of it last season i think it was um Oh, I can't remember. There was a really funny team that was like, oh, we want to play, like, you know, get back to our traditional brand of football. And I was like, what do you think that is? But, um, but yeah, I think, you know, if Everton fans uh, uh, have high expectations for how they want to play on the pitch, Nuno might be, uh, you know, the best thing for them, but not something they'll be particularly enthused about. Yeah, he could well be. Um, I mean, who's to say? It's all up in the air. I do think um, the last manager that I would want to touch on that has been touted as a potential option is bit more of a left field one. I think he's currently got the lowest odds of any manager to come in. But Slaven Bilic, I think, wouldn't necessarily be the worst idea in the world. I mean, he, I think, would be, again, a stabilising presence. I think he, um, he's, he's talked in the past about how he really likes to, to focus on team motivation, player motivation. Um, I don't know, just a thought. I could see him, I could see him working. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, solid job for West Ham, less so of one for, for West Brom, but also, crucially, used to play for Everton when he was a, when he was a player, so that fits the bill as well. Oh yeah, of course, good point, I haven't even remembered that. So he takes that box as well. Um, let's look at a club where things are slightly more exciting because we had, uh, than depressing as it is at Everton moment, because we had a fantastic, one of my favourite things to happen in the Premier League, which is when something is pure narrative and you can see it coming from like a million miles away. Um <laughs> And that was Manchester United versus Aston Villa. Um, Manchester United having a classic sort of game where they scored and then just sat back for ages. I think they were 1-0 up and they were just taking complete liberties with the game. Um, and you could sort of feel like they were waiting for the uh, hair to sort of bail them out, bail them out, bail them out. And then Fernando scored a second and you thought, okay, maybe this game is shut down. And then I had—I don't even know if I clocked that he was in the squad. I saw Coutinho warming up and I was like, oh, there's only one way this ends. There's absolutely <laughs> only one way this ends now. <laughs> um, 
yeah, and you know, came off the bench, combined extremely well with Jacob Ramsey. It's always a really good sign. Um, I think you identified this actually uh, at the very start of the season of Emmanuel Dennis in the first game, which was a, a very prescient moment from you, uh, sort of his uh, interaction with the other Watford players. But it's always a really good sign when a player comes in and immediately has chemistry with other, pl- with other players. And continue obviously played very well, but his link-up play with Jacob Ramsey specifically mm. was was really impressive. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say like he didn't really get the assist. It, no, but in terms of how, how they were play playing the off each other. But yeah, no, I agree with you. Beyond that, I think um, it seemed like he really understood the team, not Lisa, which because, you know, he knew exactly when to arrive at the back post to score, um, you know, the equalising goal. And obviously that's part experience and he is very experienced, but it's also testament to the fact that he already seems to kind of understand the kind of ideas that the manager's going for, that the team are, are running and... Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, it literally was the perfect reintroduction because even as a Liverpool fan, you should be happy that they that they, um, they helped Man U drop points. So, you know, I think... I think li- um, Liverpool fans already, I mean, did you see that, like, weirdly, Liverpool, like, official Twitter announced when Gerald became the Villa manager? So I think already... I'm not going to say all Liverpool fans, but I feel like a lot of Liverpool fans are kind of sort of soft supporting Villa just in terms of wanting to see Gerrard do well. In much the same way that I think um, a lot of Arsenal fans are sort of soft supporting Crystal Palace this season because they want to see Patrick Vieira do well. Yeah, no, I'm I'm sure that's um, that's very much the case. And yeah, so I mean, I think way, um... like a former Liverpool player playing for like a former Liverpool legend as manager scoring against their deadly rivals Manchester United is like I'm sure there was more than a few uh, <laughs> Liverpool fans cheering in their front dancing rooms. in the streets absolutely I think um yeah I, I don't know how good he will be to be honest with you I think it's always a bit of a roll of the dice when you get an older player like that in I mean as we saw with someone like Gareth Bale um and I think that this is the perfect platform for him to build on in terms of you know um, confidence and you know getting settled but I, I wouldn't say you know he's going to turn around and score you know five to ten goals this season or get five to ten assists um, time will tell but it's it's fun to have him back isn't it yeah it's interesting it's one of those I kind of because Coutinho for a long time has been a player who's like a little bit unsettled at Barcelona and every window there's been rumours linking him to various clubs. It's been linked to Arsenal a few times, it's been linked to Spurs a few times. Obviously the Liverpool return has been mentioned a few times and was mentioned uh, this this window as well. People sort of talking about him as a potential fill-in stopgap for for the uh, you know, Salah and Mane being away. But I actually almost like this kind of move better where he has kind of less to prove and that can go one of two ways because... He you know, sometimes players can make this kind of move and sort of almost think they're, you know, Charlie Big Potatoes and be like, well, I've played for Bayern Munich and Barcelona and Liverpool in this league, so I don't need to. But based on this very good early start, hopefully it doesn't seem like that. It is very early doors. I mean, you, you know, you were talking about James Rodriguez earlier. He uh, had a very strong first four games or so for, for Everton last season and then kind of just disappeared off the face of the earth. But, um, you know, you'd hope that Coutinho, he's got half a season here to make his case for either Barcelona when he returns there and go, hey, did you see what I was going up to over there? Get me back in the team or another club, be that Villa or someone else in the summer. Very true. I think um, my instinct is that Coutinho is the wrong profile of player that Barcelona won at the moment because he'll he'll command too many wages and, you know, he's he's the wrong side of 30. But, yeah. Well, yeah, no, I, I, I would agree on the face of it. He's, in, if, he's in the window. If, That's if the main he thing. has... This the second half of the season that let's say Jesse Lingard or Joe Willock had last season, which is you know two players who have not continued that form of year. But if he has that kind of season, you can see how Barcelona might go. Oh, okay, we actually do have a top player, and we now don't need to sort of outlay even more money for another player. It, it, it depends how well he does. If he scores, let's say twelve goals, which is a crazy number, but let's just say for the sake of argument, uh, it could be very interesting. I and mean, I do think it's going to be interesting to see how he does, just because. You look at Coutinho at Villa, and as much as I said, I liked seeing that move happen. It was one that you sort of scratched your head a little bit about. Obviously, there is the Gerrard connection and the Christian Perslow connection. Uh, obviously, the former former Liverpool CEO that we talked about as well. Um, so there is that connection. It is a little bit weird because when you think about Villa, the area they needed improvement on was not necessarily that sort of like front line. They already have Ollie Watkins and Danny Ings and sort of figuring out how to do that. Leon Bailey, who has missed a lot of games this season, but you would imagine when he's fit, they want to sort of get him into the team. Buendia as well. But, um, Bertrand Torre is away at the AFCON, but he's, he's played a lot of games. Well. 
the Carney Chukomaker's come through and been very impressive at points um, and has sort of been getting, you know, his first sort of taste of Premier League football here and there. So it was an odd signing. And you sort of wonder when Villa's full team is fit, how do they line up? Is it with all of those players of Ings, Watkins, Bailey, Buendia and Coutinho? And what would that look like? Or which one of them misses out? Well, I think this is this is the reason why it's it's a bit of a gamble from Villa because to bring in um, someone like Coutinho, you you kind of have to take a risk that he is going to be a significant value add um, because presumably it will be disrupting to the dressing room and you know it's not necessarily a position that you would go for immediately. But I feel like you know a combination of the fact that maybe he was made available and Steven Gerrard. Felt like he could get him because of his relationship with him, so he went for him. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see how how it all pans out. Yeah, I mean, as of today, Tuesday the eighteenth of January, it looks like an inspired signing. Dot dot dot. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work out well. He might, you know, suddenly run out of steam. And you know, for all we know, Coutinho, uh, you know, obviously, I think he went to Liverpool when he was twenty from Inter Milan, uh, and was sort of not doing so hot at Inter Milan. And sort of, I think he got sold for like eight million pounds or something. Very highly rated when he went there, but to Inter Milan, but then it didn't work out. So Liverpool sort of gave him a new lease of life. So you know, it's not a stretch to imagine that he holds some uh, some personal love for Liverpool in his heart. Maybe sort of the old Liverpool United rivalry helped spur him onto a great debut. And when he's playing Everton next to... Uh, well, actually, Everton as well, actually. Uh, when he's, he's playing, playing Everton. I was literally just going to say he's playing Everton next whoever, week. Whoever he plays uh, after Everton, uh, <laughs> hopefully not another team that Liverpool have beef with, he'll look really good against Everton. And everyone will go, yeah, this was a really good signing. He'll score, get two goals and two assists. Uh, and then whoever he plays after that, he'll uh, he'll suddenly run out of steam because he just doesn't care. Could well be. Well, and then uh, his spirit is broken mid-April when he comes up against Liverpool. <laughs> When he's play- yeah, when he's playing like Le- Leeds United, they play after Everton. May- maybe he'll look amazing at Goodison Park again, sort of embodying his uh, the, you know, line of Liverpool spirit. Um, and then when they play Leeds United, they'll just be like, I don't even. These guys went in the league when I was here, and I'm from Brazil. I don't know what a Leeds United is, so I'm gonna wander around the pitch for ninety minutes. <laughs> what is a Leeds? Um, <laughs> let's uh, yeah, let's um, let's leave that where it is. We've said our piece. Um, let's move into useless trivia, and I've got a uh, quite a fun one for you this week in honour of um, the great James Ward Prowse and his latest bullet free kick. I thought to myself um, as I watched it go in, how many free kicks has he scored in comparison with other Premier League greats of their time? And indeed, it is the case that this strike puts him at the very top, um, eclipsing, believe it or not, Seb Larson. Um, who is the second most um, highest free kick scorer in Premier League history with 11, goes up to 12. Um, but uh, I was looking through his um, his highlight reel of his free kicks and he scored three free kicks in November of 2020. That's one month. And I'm pretty sure, I haven't actually really been able to work out if it is a record, but I'm pretty sure it is. But... I was looking at actually how many people have done better than that in their entire Premier League careers. And only 27 players in the history of the Premier League have scored more than three free kicks in their whole career. So um, only only 27 players in the history of the Premier League have done better than what James Will-Prowse could do in a month of free kicks. He, he really is. I think maybe you could make the case that Lionel Messi back in the day it was better but I think he might be the best devil specialist on the planet <laughs> I mean, genuinely James Ward-Prowse he's just so so good it's funny you mentioned Seb Larson because I remember Seb, Seb Larson was in many ways the James Ward-Prowse of his day he was a player especially for Sunderland he was sort of like fine and often sort of like good but you know unspectacular but good god if they got a dead ball from like anywhere <laughs> you would just go well this is probably going in uh, and that it really was a really fun uh, it was a really fun trip down memory lane when i saw seb larson's name morton gamps pedersen is sixth as well um christian erickson in fourth he's been linked with a move back to the premier league which we'll talk about a little bit later on but uh yeah big up jwp yeah long may continue honestly to the point where i'm like i almost want to have some sort of like <laughs> I want like Gareth Southgate to to 
play at the World Cup almost like we're an NFL team. And like, if we ever have a free kick, just like bring on special teams. <laughs> but then take them off again after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If there's like a decisive free kick at like 77 minutes in in a huge game, bring on James Will Prowse and then like, you know, ask the ref if you can do rolling subs. <laughs> Well, Im- imagine, imagine if that was a COVID response, rolling subs. Oh my God, who better would be positioned than England for that? Just James or Prowse sort of just like sitting around, just going, just keep yourself warm, James, and I get ready to hit those dead balls. Because I don't think there's anyone else you would trust more than him at the moment in the world to take a free kick. No, I think if, if you gun to your head, I think you'd, you'd pick him, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, that is a great start. Uh, I always appreciate some uh, some James Ward Prowse appreciation, uh, as I know you do as well. Uh, mine is uh, about football food and about the kind of food that people eat at games. Uh, there has been, I don't know if you've seen much of this, a Twitter account lately that has sort of been going viral every now and again and things will be retweeted. It's called uh, Footy Scran. Uh, footy with a Y, not an IE. And it started, I believe, as just some bloke who went to a lot of matches in this sort of local area and would sort of take pictures of the offerings there and, and upload them to Twitter and upload them with the price as well, which is the sort of most crucial part. And it's got to a point now, it's got to a size now where people will send in their experiences to him. So we will get sort of fan submissions. So it's quite cool. It's like on a match day, especially on the weekends, you'll open up the feed and they'll have like 30 new tweets and there'll be people all across the country who've had different kinds of things. And some of the offerings are really, really impressive. Some of them are just uh, absolute shockers, but it's, it's always very interesting. And some of them, you'll see like someone who's at like, you know, Dunfermline FC and they've got like what seems to be like an entire roast. It's <laughs> like, oh, this only yeah, cost me some... £1.50. <laughs> and you're just like, that's, that's outrageous. Some um, people have some unreal, yeah, match day tees. There were some absolutely fantastic offering uh, offerings, and um, what I found interesting about that is it's got to a size now where it started to sort of like incur the interest of people outside of Britain, uh, which is interesting because a lot of these meals are these match day meals are sort of intrinsically British, notably pies and and pies and gravy and that sort of thing. And pies, um, you may be interested to learn, are sort of a, a uniquely English football food. Uh, and there was sort of a lot of talk about how sort of he was getting slated by Americans and then he was getting slated by French people and they're all saying like, oh, this is ridiculous that this is what you're eating. At the same time, having their own sort of like weird regional thing that they're, I'm sure, immensely proud of. But, you know, everyone has their own idiosyncrasies. Um, but it, it got me to wondering as to what the most common football foods are because there are always those things when you go to a football match and you see something and you're just like, that's not really a football food, is it? Like, I remember um, so they started serving pizza at a lot of grounds in the UK and uh, as much as I love a good pizza, pizza is not a football food as far as I'm concerned. I don't know about you. Uh, see, I don't know about that. I feel like I, I would quite like a pizza at any time of day. Um, I don't know how I'd eat it in the stands, but it feels like a... You know, it's something that you'd order in while watching a game. So I could... Yeah, maybe no. Maybe it's weird. I think you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm talking specifically about match day foods because it's, it's a very different situation when, you, when you're eating something at a game or whether you're eating something at home. Match day foods, like the reason like pies, hot dogs, sort of different kinds of sandwiches are so popular worldwide is because you have the ability to eat it with one hand. If you're standing on a terrace, you can sort of jump around with it. You, it it's, it's good for that reason. Burgers, similarly. Um, yeah, I hear you. Anyway. I hear you. It got me to thinking about, you know, well, I consider something normal and <laughs> nice I consider that abnormal. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what is the normal offering at various places across, uh, you know, Europe? Um, and I was absolutely astounded to learn what the most popular food, match day food, across all of Europe is. Like, like there's one food that is a close second, but the food that's the most popular match day food amongst European people. Oh... Um, I don't know. You know, I, I mean, you're making it sound like it's something really bizarre. It it really is. And what's is even more interesting, you're not a million miles away. If you look at a map of this thing divided in, you know, a map of Europe, it's divided almost in half, like the Iron Curtain, with the exception of Spain, who go this way <laughs> for some bizarre reason. The most popular snack, if you take all of Europe into account, the one that's eaten the most frequently. Oh, is it is seeds? Sun- like like um, sunflower seeds? Sunflower seeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
which which I just thought was bizarre. And I, I spoke to a, I, I spoke to a few friends about it. I, I saw this uh, during my research. I sent this to a lot of people, but not to you because I wanted to talk to you about this live. Um, but uh, yeah, sunflower seeds. I thought that seems bizarre. My first thought is just like eating loose seeds at a game where you might be jumping around. Like I can only imagine the chaos if like five people in a row are eating sunflower seeds and your team scores. Yeah, I mean, so I the the reason I the reason I guessed that was because um, I. I was trying to think of what my experience had been going to different games in Europe. I've been to a match in Germany. I've been to a match in Hungary, which is where I had popcorn. They had popcorn for like the equivalent of a pound, and it was an absolute game changer. Um, but they had um, they had sunflower seeds in Spain. Um, I went to watch a match. Um, oh, it's uh, Rayo Vallecano um, in Madrid. Mm. Uh, and yeah, they were they were serving sunflower seeds. So me and me and my friend had uh, had a nice big old thing of sunflower seeds as our as our how, how match they, day snack. How, how did they serve them? Were they like in a bag in a box? What, what how, how a, do you consume I'm, these seeds? I'm pretty sure it's just in like a plastic, like a just like a plastic bag you'd buy at the supermarket. As in not a not like what? a not like a bag you'd like put groceries in, but like a bag that would have like peanuts in or pistachios or just one of those little. You know okay, I mean? well, that's slightly less insane. It's still pretty insane to be eating a bag of seeds. But yeah, it's really interesting. It just almost divided Spain and Andorra. There's sort of only two Western European countries that, that go that way for seeds. But there are also some really other ones. You know, in Bosnia, the, uh, the, the food of choice to match day, salted grapes. What? Salted grapes. Uh, in Malta, you might enjoy a cappuccino in a sandwich, which seems like more of a sit-down kind of, I guess, the sandwich, but a, a cappuccino <laughs> seems, uh, seems very extra for a... For, <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe people are just less active in those places but yeah no i mean now i must go and uh try this uh this custom of eating seeds while i watch football because apparently it's it's the most popular thing across europe I, I tell you what cam next time you come to watch a game at my house i'll bring them out they're quite nice <laughs> okay but again it's, diff- it's different than a house so i'll need to if i'm in your house i need to pretend like i'm in a game so i will be leaping around spilling beer all over <laughs> your sofa <laughs> i'll sneak some into the stadium next next match we go to Okay, that, that's even better. Uh, next, let's look at uh, something that's, uh, well, slightly less bizarre, because I was just talking about Eastern European seed habits for, for a long time there on this uh, podcast that's ostensibly about football. Uh, but something that's still uh, an interesting bit of news, which is Brentford offering Christian Eriksen a contract. Um, he obviously had that uh, tragic incident happen at the Euros with his heart and had to terminate his contract with Inter Milan because the Italian authorities basically said, look, mate, we're not going to let you play in Serie A as long as you have a device regulating your heartbeat. Um, but apparently in the Premier League, everyone's sort of a little bit more relaxed about that here. Not sure as to the difference as why. Uh, not a medical professional, so I won't even try there. But he might be coming back to the Premier League. They've offered him a six-month month contract with an option for another year. And it's a really interesting potential move. Um, Christian Eriksen is a very talented player on his day. You could see how the fit makes a lot of sense. He's very used to London. He's Danish. And Brentford have a, a number of Nordic players. Thomas Frank himself is Danish. In many ways, it could be a perfect fit for the player. And for Brentford, it could be a much-needed injection of proven Premier League experience, someone who has been one of the top creators in the league uh, quite a few times and could sort of help string things together for a team that sometimes looks a little bit bereft in midfield. Um, you have any thoughts on this? Brentford wanted to sign Christian Eriksen? I'm a big fan of this potential move. I'm really in favour of it from a footballing sense. I guess I'm slightly nervous about the idea that a player that has been denied from one league on the grounds of like health concerns, you know, finding just find just finding another league to play in instead, um, you know, we're we're no strangers, I guess, England England fans, fans of English football, of you know having having much loved players die before their time. A little nervous about that, but you know, I, I would love to see him thrive. Ericsson's a weird player because. I don't know if you have this, but he definitely falls into this category of player for me that I just want him to succeed. Like He's got something about him that I really like. I love that he's two-footed. He just seems to always have a really good attitude. Um, I, I want him to do well. Um, so, yeah, if, if this works out for him, all power to him. But I've got a little you know, nervous thought in the back of my head that maybe he shouldn't be playing football anymore. 
Yeah, and that's a completely reasonable thought to go for. And, uh, you know, my, my only thinking, and perhaps this is me placing a, a little bit too much trust into a, a, an organisation that every other turn I'm willing to bash, is that the Premier League wouldn't let him play unless there was sort of some vouching for his safety and they sort of spoke to doctors and his doctors haven't said he can't play again. It just seems to be a, an Italian-specific thing. So there are other leagues where he can play. Um, but, you know, f- fingers crossed it works out. Uh, you would have to hope that, he is following the best medical advice, but obviously we, we, we don't know that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that aside, which is obviously a good thing to mention, I, I do think it could be a really nice a really nice fit, one that really works out well. Um, I mentioned earlier that Brentford sort of have their issues in midfield. They actually have only created 127 chances from open play in the league this season, and only Newcastle and Burnley, the division's current bottom two teams, have created fewer. Ericsson, of course, is a great chance creator. In 2017-18, when Tottenham finished uh, third place, he created 95 chances, second in the league, only to uh, Kevin De Bruyne for Manchester City, um, and a 62 assists in 226 Premier League appearances. So, obviously, he's been out for a little while, but there is a really good player there who can fill one of Brentford's biggest gaps. Yeah, and he's one of the few players, I think, that I can think of that has gone from um, a league like the Eredivisie and managed to recreate that form in the Premier League. I'm thinking of someone like Dusan Tadic, who looked really... He, he was solid for Southampton, but bookended by some incredible football um, on either side of his, his stint in the Premier League. Um, you know, I think he scored, like, he had the most chances created in Eredivisie before he came to Southampton and then looked quite good, but never really hit the same heights. And then he's gone back again, has been unreal. Um, think of someone like Hakim Ziyech, who... Again, he looks like a pretty solid player, but nowhere near the player that we saw in Holland. So Christian Eriksen, I think, is someone who just, you know, really managed to hit his stride in the Premier League. So I I would love to see him back. He's such a creative powerhouse in the midfield, as you said there. Um, And yeah, again, just another, another player that would make the league that bit much more exciting. And the idea of him feeding Ivan Toney up top it just surely has, you know, everyone in um, that part of London salivating at the mouth. Yeah, I mean, well, they've, they've started playing with that 3-5-2 a lot, haven't they? With sort of Tony and Brandon Bumo as the sort of strikers there. Just really like Inter Milan sort of, did. Well, exactly. If they had Ericsson sitting behind them in a 3-4-1-2 or something like that to be able to sort of pick out really adept sort of through balls and sort of ping balls to either one of them, uh, it would definitely make them a lot more threatening. Um, well, and, it, it you know, definitely pre- would, and um, it would also give them a new dimension to their set pieces. Um, and, you know, that's that's all often um, something which can be the difference between, you know, 15th, 16th place and 18th, 19th place if you're able to provide a consistent threat from um, from set pieces um, either through centre backs pushing forwards, um, or your tall players, or from you know just direct free kicks. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. There's a lot to like about it. The, the sort of downsides of it, besides the the medical issue that you mentioned, there is obviously he is turning thirty soon. Um, Brentford have very much focused on signing younger players. That's their whole policy. He would also break their wage structure, which often can come in sort of all sorts of complicating uh, things. But if they can find a way to make it work, it could be a match made in heaven. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um policy aside of young players I think that's something that it's obviously your your general intention to have young players but I think you know a 30 year old here and there is very much not the worst idea in the world especially when you want you know more experience in the dressing room um, and Brentford do need more Premier League experience and more just general experience um, but when it comes to wages I feel like Christian Eriksen will be so eager to to return to the Premier League return to London um, work with a manager that he trusts, get back into playing football again, that I, I th- would imagine that he would probably be quite willing to take a bit of a pay cut. Yeah, you, you would definitely hope so. Uh, looking next at a couple of uh, interesting stories coming out of the AFCON, we've had uh, quite a crazy week coming out of it indeed. We had uh, Ivory Coast Sierra Leone 2-2, um, which was a very bizarre one that sort of ended with like a bit of a pitch issue for the keeper and there being a very weird equaliser for Sierra Leone, but nonetheless a huge upset for Sierra Leone. Um, Ghana have been sent home after losing 3-2 in their final final game of the group um, and only amassing one point in their three games, which is kind of crazy for a, a team of that size. Um, and uh, Algeria are the other team that are, you know, not having the hottest time. 
They entered this tournament on a 34-game unbeaten run. Uh, as everyone will remember from the Euros, the record is 37, which was Italy. Um, and they then lost that in the Nations League when they lost to Spain, I believe. But Algeria yeah. then went up to 35. A lot of people thought they were going to take it to at least 36, and then the 37th would have been against um, the Ivory Coast, which would have been a huge sort of amazing game anyway within the context of the AFCON, but also potential to, to draw with Italy's 37-game unbeaten run. Um but instead, they have had a little bit of a shocking tournament. They drew their first game um, against Sierra Leone, who you know <laughs> have gone into this group of death and really performed well so far, I've got to say. Um, but also uh, managing to lose against Equatorial Guinea, who were not a team that were expected to beat many teams in this tournament, much less Algeria. Um, so they do draw level with Spain and Brazil uh, in 35 games unbeaten. It's joint second, but uh, fall just short. It's worth mentioning, of course, that Algeria are also the AFCON defending champions. And at currently bottom of their group, are pretty likely to go home with their final group stage game against a very strong Cote d'Ivoire. Yeah, the tournament's been blown wide open and there have been, as you kind of mentioned there, upsets all over. And the Algeria game was, was interesting because uh, as I was watching it, the commentators kept criticising Equatorial Guinea's um, set pieces. They had this tactic that eventually led to them scoring, um, which was that they'd kind of they'd try and hit it low, and then like fizz it across the the um, the six yard box and try and get someone in at the front post to to get a little nick on it. And they almost scored once or twice from it, even if it was kind of bouncing out and then someone having a chance on the edge of the box, but. They kept being really, really harsh about um, that as like a tactic and then eventually it led to them scoring. So, I mean, they were kind of threatening throughout the game. It was by no means a smash and grab. Um, And Algeria just didn't really look the part that you would expect from someone who has gone into the tournament, as you say, 34 games unbeaten and reigning champions. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And and you're right, you know, Equatorial Guinea had... Uh, less possession, but significantly more shots. It was a classic game from Algeria where they had all of the ball, but didn't do anything with it really. Um, and it's you know it, it's always it's one of those two things that you can go with it at a tournament like this when a big team gets knocked out early. On the one hand, maybe it's a little bit sad because we didn't see them at their peak and we're not going to see them sort of face off against many of the heavyweights. But at the same time, always nice to have a bit of an upset. And now there is a chance for uh, yet new big champions to arise. Very much so, yeah. And um, yeah, I mean. It- you know, fans of the Premier League might be interested to see, you know, the, the much loved players that have moved over from from England for the for the month are also doing very well. Mohamed Salah scored um, the winner this week. Naby Keita scored an amazing um, was it volley, I believe. Um, and yeah, yeah they all <laughs> seem to be really very much turning up. Yeah, apart, uh, apart from very Morris, I guess. Uh, we've, we, you know, apart from Rio Mars, but we've got uh, a number of very exciting teams, regardless, uh, already qualified. Obviously, Cameroon and Nigeria, uh, two huge names already in the round of 16, and a number of others have joined today as well, I believe. But we'll uh, we'll be seeing that shortly, because um, uh, I'm forgetting all of these names off the top of my head. But yeah, no, it's been a really interesting tournament so far, and now we're getting into the uh, the knockouts, which is where, obviously, things get very fast and loose. So lots more to be excited about. They sure are. Um and yeah, let's uh, let's move back to Europe and just talk about, I guess, the the interesting contrast um, which is happening at the moment with um, Germany and the Bundesliga's approach to COVID um, and how it's being treated over in England. Yeah, I think this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Partly because uh, we talked about this with Leicester about how sometimes you can sort of look at a canary in the mine scenario, so an early doors thing, and then go, could this be indicative of a problem that comes out later? And secondly, because a lot of people, ourselves included, have been sort of criticising the Premier League for postponing games too easily, and the Bundesliga have gone completely the other way with it and are just not postponing anything. Um, and that's not to say that one is right or one is wrong. I actually think the real answer is probably that both are wrong and there's a, a compromisable situation that actually works better. But I just thought it'd be interesting to go over it um, for those who are thinking a lot about postponement lately uh, and sort of either annoyed about it or think it's justified, just to sort of consider a a situation where the exact reverse is happening. So um, basically at the root of things is this very interesting technicality in the rules in German football. Who'd have thought it, eh? Technicalities in, uh, in, in German rules. Um, basically, they stipulate uh, the DFL that uh, 
if a club has more than 15 players eligible to play for the first team, they can't ask for a game to be postponed. So that sounds pretty similar to what we have here. In fact, it's actually more lenient. It's, uh, also oh, sorry, less lenient. It's, um, here in England, it's you have to have 14 available players and the Premier League has postponed games on this basis, notably the Leicester game. Um, the Italian government has just drawn up, a, uh, drawn up a new COVID-19 protocol that will see Serie A games called off if at least 35% of the first-team squad has tested positive. But the interesting thing about this, the interesting thing about the way the Joe Lee did, and this did sort of slightly make me laugh, I probably wouldn't make me laugh if I was a fan of a Bundesliga team, but in the Bundesliga, players who are serving suspensions still count as available under that ruling, even though they're not available. So that's kind of interesting, but I suppose maybe you could make the case that, you know, okay, well, you've incurred that suspension, so your team shouldn't sort of get a buy as a result. I mean, I think that (laughs) is the intention, yeah. The same also applies, however, for injured players, (laughs) providing that it is a sport-typical injury. So it doesn't count for people who have COVID, but if you have, like, an ACL and can't play for six months if it's a sport-typical injury, the the league will still go, well, you're considered available. And it's like, well, no, they're not. Yeah, it's a a bit of a weird old uh, um, intricacy within the rules. I don't... It's not right, um, but... You know, I, I for one, don't necessarily hate the idea that people are having to play games, as we've talked about. Um, You are right, I think, that some sort of compromise middle ground should be found. But um, I guess that my main observation that I wanted to make was that it's interesting to see, you know, a lot being made of of the big examples. So Bayern in Germany were the big example. They lost to Mönchengladbach. They had 11 players missing. Um, but realistically, the the clubs that are going to be hurt the most by this are the smaller clubs because they don't have as big a squad of players to draw on. Um, and then also, smaller clubs are probably going to struggle the other way because if matches get postponed and then they have to play a bunch in a row, that's going to suit bigger teams much more because they've got a deeper squad of players to draw from. Um, so it's interesting to to note that kind of both solutions presenting in England and in Germany, kind of seem to be supporting um, the uh, the bigger clubs. And I, I recognise that's a bit of a weird thing to say because they're two ends of the spectrum, but I do wonder if some middle ground could be found that would maybe make things a little more balanced. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, difficult, the difficulty there is I think you can make the case that any... Any in, like any rule that isn't inherently non-competitive is always going to seem like it favours the bigger clubs because the bigger clubs are in ge- they're generally better positioned for most situations. So most situations, if everyone's treated equally, the big clubs are going to come out on top because they have better resources, they have deeper squads, they have you know more uh, more ability to sort of like pay for lawyers for legal fees or whatever. So they they it's always going to come out looking like big clubs have done better off. Um, is what I would necessarily say to that, but I do. What I do think is interesting about this situation is, yeah, it's it's, it's an opposite. I think it's a really interesting one where it's not a, a black and white issue because I think you've got one team doing black, one team doing white, and both, in my opinion, are wrong. Um, <laughs> I do think it's also interesting that the DFL have sort of said that they don't want to make any rule changes in the middle of the season because they think that it. it, it what they've said is that they they, they want to ensure the integrity of the competition and changing rules in the middle of the season doesn't do that, which is a thought that I've had a lot of the time about this sort of COVID situation. But I guess, well, I think this is less of a thing this season because it's not like COVID is a new thing. Maybe in the middle of the season that got postponed, then fine, do rule changes. But it is weird that we're like, two years and change into this situation and some clubs are still struggling to adapt and make provisions for it uh clubs organizations yeah so i was i read that and i thought to myself sure i get it firstly what is this like you know loose term like the integrity of the system i don't really you know that's not a, a tangible concrete thing really and secondly you absolutely should change the system if the system isn't working for unforeseen circumstances. And thirdly, these are not unforeseen circumstances. There should have been measures put in place for if something like this was going to happen way back before the season even started over the summer. They should have been thinking, okay, what happens if if 10 players get COVID? How are we going to deal with that situation? Rather than being like, well, we're not going to change it now. I, I think it's so baffling. 
I, I think I think that con- I think that's fair that they should have been thinking about it before the season. But I do think there's something to be said about the whole integrity of the competition com- like comment. Just because it's interesting to look at the Premier League now and look at how. Uh, uh, often criticism made by sort of salty fans, especially because this is January and we're both in the middle of a window and also the AFCON is happening. One of the big sort of accusations that a lot of fans have thrown at rival fans or fans who have called games off when they're meant to play them is like, oh, you just want to postpone your game now so that either you have these players who are key to your squad come back from the AFCON or so that you have time to buy players. In the example of, you know, Burnley, for example... Burnley had Chris Wood's release clause triggered. They couldn't really do anything about it. And he just left, obviously, to go on super wages at Newcastle. They had not had enough time to buy a new striker. I'm not saying that's why they've done it, but you can see how that argument is made. It's interesting because even Ralph Hasenhutl, they had a big meeting with all the managers to discuss what should be done about all the postponements. And Ralph Hasenhutl floated a, as far as I know, relatively unsupported idea. I think he was the only one sort of shouting into the empty room about it. But he suggested that any players who are bought in January not to be allowed to be used in rescheduled fixtures, which is an interesting thought because, you know, the the typical way that the Premier League works is you get 19 or so games, a mid-season break to sort of improve your squad if you sort of have any shortcomings, and then 19 or so, everyone has that, and so that, in a sense, is, is fair, whereas now you have some teams, like for example, and I know Manchester City aren't a great example because they are a huge team who could buy whatever they want, but they've played 22 games and Burnley have played 17 games with their sort of pre-transfer squads. So Burnley could then go on and play way more games and have a much bigger advantage, not than Man City, for example, but let's say a Norwich. Sure. I I think anything like this, people are going to feel hard done by, you know, because if Burnley don't get to play the, um, their players, then obviously they're going to feel really hard done by. I think ultimately everyone has a little mini internal Jurgen Klopp saying this isn't fair for all of these reasons and you know you can you know I mean take for example another Jurgen Klopp because but it is fair for my club (laughs) (laughs) but I don't know take like the Ballon d'Or like yes maybe there's going to be an asterisk next to it but you know should should it still have carried on in 2020 2021 should it you know should it be I don't know, not etched as deeply because it was done in weird times. You know, it, I just think all you can do is adapt to the circumstances and it's just how things come out on the rub and some people are going to always yeah, be saying, slightly you're, more you're, you're inconvenienced that, than others. You're, you're saying that asterisk thing, though, because you're, you're, you're talking about, you're thinking of that from like a winner's perspective there. Like I think if you're a club that goes down, when, when clubs go down, people lose their jobs. So, you know, pe- people lose their jobs, or whether if you work at the club, sometimes not just the manager, but, you know, there are huge occasions of sort of people being laid off part of the club staff. So I could see why, you know, clubs would be, and also, of course, the club loses a load of money as well when they go down. So I could see why you'd be absolutely fuming if you were, let's say, Leeds, and you've had to play loads of games with the kids, but for other teams, they get the thing postponed because you'd be like, where's the consistency? Like Burnley can, and I'm not saying this is what Burnley are doing, but I can see why you would take this stance if you were Leeds and you would go, well, Burnley just postponing it because they're in a bad position. When we're in a bad position, we just had to suck it up and play those games. We've lost those games as a result. Now we're down in the the championship again and they're in the Premier League. How is that fair to the tune of hundreds of millions of pounds? I, I do agree that it's it's dangerous to be making these decisions on a game-by-game basis rather than just, you know, introducing a new, you know, set of laws, set of regulations that just get followed to the T. I agree that, you know, this whole, like, decision panel thing is problematic for those reasons because it does just feel a bit pick-and-choosy and, like, well, it was different for us when we were doing it. Um, but I do just think, you know... that. There isn't, there's not going to be a perfect solution. There are no perfect solutions in this. And, you know, all I'm hearing is problems. I, I agree that they're problems, but realistically, how can we fix them? Yeah, no, it's, it's very true. And it is interesting because you've got two of the biggest leagues in the world that have gone for very different approaches and they are both wrong. So it clearly isn't that easy to find a, uh, a solution. Well, exactly. I mean, I don't think... Um, I've heard of at least you might you might know differently, but I can't think of any country that has like really nailed this, um, or any league that's really nailed it. I think everyone's you know scrambling around in the dark. 
I quite like the Hassan Noodle suggestion. I haven't really put that much thought into it, but I just like it because of the inherent chaos it brings to a, to a, to a game. If like <laughs> someone's having like a really good run of form, and then it's because like it's kind of like how players can't play against their parent clubs if they're alone. I like the idea that someone could be like on a really good vein of form, and then it's like uh, 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 you're meant to play this game in November, so you can't use that amazing striker you just bought. I mean, I'm to be honest, I'm actually not really against it either. I kind of I kind of agree there. Um, that could work out. I think, um, again, maybe do some sort of middle ground approach rather than uh, an absolute. But the Premier League will do what the Premier League will do. Yeah, they absolutely will. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the Bundesliga do as well. Obviously, the Bundesliga has just come back. They're one weekend from the winter break. So this is just an issue that's really only happened to Bayern so far. Could happen to more teams. They could eventually have their sort of stoic resoluteness broken by every team being like, please, we have four players available. Stop making us play these games. Um... But uh, yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I also think it'll be interesting what happens over in the Premier League because, like, you know, not to harp on Burnley, but Burnley have now had their their fifth game rescheduled, and obviously one was because of snow, so not no one's fault, uh, or no sort of postponement issue there. But um, it'll be interesting to see how their season ends up because we might sort of end up with Burnley having to play about like twelve games in the last four weeks of the season, um, which when when you think about that, I don't see how anyone could think that that's a, a benefit for Burnley. <laughs> Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty savage, isn't it? Um, it definitely will be. Well, but that is probably uh, thinking about Burnley's tragedy uh, a good place to end off as we started on Everton's tragedy. So a real tragedy sandwich there. Uh, there Rupert, go. good to talk F's, to you as always. F's in the chat, Cam. Thank you very much, <laughs> and thank you to everyone at home for listening. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.